there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Jamie Carragher, who does terrific work for Paramount Plus's Champions League coverage. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Jamie Carragher in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Really good soccer weekend for me. I uh, I, I called my first Inter Miami game on over the air radio this weekend, and uh, nice. and then you know obviously I'm a, I'm a Man City supporter, so I really enjoyed the game today. But I also suffered the game today. We will break it down momentarily. We will. By the way, Inter Miami. I thought nice win, uh, first win of the season in the league. Um, against the New England Revolution, which is just reeling right now, surprisingly. But uh, nice hat trick from Campana and, and Gonzalo Higuain not playing. Are we sure? Was that a coach's choice or an injury? Uh, it is. Uh, it is an injury. So uh, yeah. Okay. He, so so he, he 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 didn't get the start. But I mean, Leo Campana and like he's got real pedigree. I don't know if people know that, but he was like the top scorer of the South American under 20 championship, which is like, you know, if you're scoring well at that level, you're going to big things, got to move to Wolves. And he actually has an American mother. Uh, so that's why he came to MLS and didn't count against hmm. the international rules. So yeah, a really interesting pedigree. And he's trying to get to the World Cup um, with, with Ecuador. He already has 10 caps with the Ecuadorian national team. And, you know, that's a team that, you know, I don't think a lot of people really focused on in qualifying, but they got a job done in a really difficult place to qualify from. So, uh, he, he certainly has a chance to, to, to go with them. No, that was cool to see on national TV as well. Uh, in addition to your broadcast, uh, which you're doing plenty of these days and the dominant game of the weekend globally, everywhere, Man City 2, Liverpool 2, and yet again, I realize you're watching this as a Man City fan, and I think we can actually have a discussion about this because I thought the the contrast was pretty remarkable between what people who were fans of the individual teams, Man City and Liverpool, were saying about this game versus what the neutral, which includes me, was thinking and saying about this game, which was, this is awesome. And it's regularly awesome the games between these two teams over the last several years now, and they are undoubtedly to me, the two best club teams in the world at this point, but the, their ability to produce entertaining games nearly every time. And how often can we say that in the soccer world when so many finals disappoint seem cagey and even big rivalry games, you know, even when Real Madrid and Barcelona were just going at it for so many years, and it was maybe most heated when Mourinho was coaching Real Madrid, there was an element of real nastiness and caginess to those games that I just don't feel when City and Liverpool play with each against each other. And I feel like Klopp and Guardiola have a tremendous amount of respect. They seem to be enjoying this. Pep who is a weirdo, by the way, in a good way, like with the giant high five at the end of the game um, with Klopp. 
And I think this is great for the sport. Yeah, I think these I think these are two managers that respect each other. I saw another clip as well of I, they were handing off the, a, a microphone, I don't know for which media outlet, uh, to do a post-match interview with. And then they had like a, it seemed like they had like a three-minute tactical discussion. And I'm sure if they didn't have media obligations, they would have kept on going. And I think that's because these two coaches obviously want to win, but also have the parallel goal of winning while entertaining. And I think coaches that want to do that seem to have a kinship in the soccer world. When when there are two coaches that like, all right, not only do we like want to go about winning and being super intense and demanding, but we also want to do so in the pursuit of beautiful, exciting, entertaining soccer, in some ways believing in the game, uh, as opposed to believing in just you winning. Uh, I think that you have this immense amount of mutual respect. And I think as well, when you look at the two fan bases, you know, I was texting with a bunch of Liverpool fan friends this morning, and there is that kind of mutual admiration to the point of it's just like, I hate these games. I hate that, like, you know, from a City fan's point of view, one of the things that I was really impressed about with today's performance was normally when Man City played Liverpool, they are interrupted from playing the game in the way that they normally do. And that's, I guess, what's so unnerving is that 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 happened more today to Liverpool than to Man City. Um, but and I think today today City today City's performance was probably as normal of a game as they played against Liverpool in terms of what it looks like over the course of 90 minutes from their build-up back to front, the way that they played. They're put under pressure, but they still played with the same calmness and patience that they normally do. Normally, Liverpool completely upset their tempo. So I think it's just, in some ways, the fear is born out of mutual ad- admiration that these two fan bases just think the world of the other team and don't look forward to playing them. And, but this contrast is fascinating to me of City and Liverpool fans that I encountered during this game did not enjoy this game in the way that I as a neutral did. And I understand that completely, totally different ways of viewing it. But then again, especially on the Liverpool side... Smart Liverpool fans were saying that at halftime, Liverpool had been, quote, dreadful in the first half. And I totally disagreed with that. Obviously, they made some mistakes. I thought Fabinho was, had a rough game overall, probably should have been sent off. Um, and yet, I, dreadful was not a word in my vocabulary today about either performance of either one of these teams, first half, second half, whenever, and I felt like any of the mistakes that took place on, on the field were mostly caused by the quality of the other team. And that's a big, big difference from unforced errors. And so I felt like some of this discussion of, oh, this was dreadful from Liverpool was ridiculous. But at the same time, though, Grant, you have to understand that generally when Liverpool or Man City don't get the result that they think they should get out of a game. It's because they think their side played poorly, not because the opposition is good enough to stop them from playing that they want to play, right? Like, you think that, okay, if we hit our best, we'll beat anybody. That's how both of these teams feel. And that's why this game is so difficult to kind of comprehend in that way. But I, I agree with you. I was I was listening to some of the fans in the pub that I went to, and they were like Liverpool fans, like, oh, that was terrible. That was awful. He was awful. He was awful. Get him off. Get Why, why didn't Luis Diaz start? And on and on and on and on about how Liverpool were bad. And I was, at, you know, I was kind of listening to it thinking, look, 
You guys are not that far away from creating your next big chance. And frankly, just before halftime, Diogo Jota had a great chance that he should have squared, I believe, to Salah for 2-2. Instead, he tries to go for goal and City do well to put out the fire. But they were never that far away from creating their next opportunity, either team. And that's kind of the edge that's difficult to live on is that, you know, I, I think it's interesting because so the history of it is that City, I think, really dislike this rivalry, dislike playing Liverpool because of how difficult it is to play at Anfield and how much they are thrown off. The Champions League defeat uh, from a few years ago, the three or four nils that they've taken a few times when they go away from home, they can't win. I think they've won, they've won there once in their last 27 Premier League trips there or something like that. Like, they can't win there. And I think Liverpool feel it because of the way that City have prevented them from winning the league in the past. When you go back to the season when, you know, Vincent Company scores on the penultimate day against Leicester to, like, complete a 17-game winning streak to close the season. City finished with 98 points. Liverpool finished with 97. Like, they have been so competitive, and City have often kept Liverpool from domestic glory when this could have been an amazing era of Liverpool when you consider the amount of silverware they could have racked up in this period. But City have been the one roadblock. So, uh, it's just kind of the interesting fan dynamics where angst is always part of the equation. Yeah, and it, it just kind of bums me out a little bit. It's maybe not surprising. It's just that if you left that game today, in my opinion, talking about mistakes that were made, you were missing the entire point because that's not the takeaway I had. The takeaway I had was this is exhilarating. I'm exhausted in a great way. <laughs> I love this sport. And I'm really excited to see them play again next weekend in the FA Cup semifinal. And I think there's a decent chance they're going to meet each other in the Champions oh. League final oh. next month. Um, and I'm excited about that. I want these teams to play each other as much as possible with high stakes. And this is the second 2-2, thrilling 2-2 of the year. And it feels like there's very little separating them. And, and that's just so exciting for me to have this type of a rivalry whose games are just such an event to look forward to. Now, here's a question. I got roasted on Twitter by a, a large number of people at the end when I said that, okay, had City won this game, they would have had a four-point advantage in the league, which I think would have been a really significant advantage, would have been totally in the driver's seat. Instead, it's a one-point advantage. And at that point... I actually still believe that Liverpool, for me, it's slight advantage Liverpool. And I realized that this game caused it to change from Liverpool controlling its own destiny in the league to not controlling its own destiny in the league. But I still feel that even though City might have a slightly easier road opponent-wise the rest of the way, that I believe Liverpool over the last two months has been a slightly better team getting slightly better results and having fewer examples of cities dropping points against Crystal Palace or against Spurs at home that I think will likely for me happen in one of these games, one or two of these games the rest of the way. And I think Liverpool is going to win the league. Am I crazy? Um, you're not. I, I, you're not. I, I think that when you go into a game, City have uh, the record at home in this rivalry is pretty good. I think they entered the day seven wins, four draws, one loss in their last twelve in the Premier League in this rivalry. So 
that like in theory that's a game that you would expect to win and so in theory that is a good result if Liverpool draw I agree with you from that kind of imperiousness standpoint Liverpool have been better since the turn of the year than Manchester City have you look at entering the day Liverpool had won 10 in a row in the league Uh, they were unbeaten in 11 they drew uh, the first game of the year uh, away at Chelsea 2-2 which is a good result Um, and so you can certainly say uh, particularly as well given the number of clean sheets that they've kept in this period as well they they entered that game against City with like eight clean sheets in their last 10 like they just look more solid at times um, than Manchester City do but if we're saying you know that there's precedent for the two teams winning out when they both have to win out then you know I think it's achievable for both teams the real question for me comes is there's only like a month and a half left in the season and both of these teams are going to be fighting on three fronts. And so who has that level of consistency to maintain with squad rotation? Because you can't feel the same 11 in every game. You know, produce the, the, the same level of performance when you know, you're playing big Champions League games, when you're playing in the FA Cup semifinal, and then when you have big Premier League matches. Liverpool, although you know their next two games are, in theory, against two easy teams to beat, they are still emotional matches uh, between Manchester United and Everton in the Derby. So, like, you know, those are games they should win, but it's also, you know, really important emotional games. So, um, I, I, I do think that Man City right now, they have the statistical advantage. I'm sure right now I can check on DraftKings Sportsbook and find that they're the, the, that they're the favorites to win, but I also also understand your argument which is that you know this is also about a level of consistency you have to show in the league and Liverpool have shown more of it and I think Liverpool uh, excuse me Man City I think have more to prove in the Champions League and so if you said right now where do you think they're putting their best teams I would say they're probably putting it in Europe more than they're putting it in the league no it's interesting and also another contrast as we this has been a discussion of contrasts is this Champions League midweek game that Man City has at Atletico Madrid, very different type of feel to that whole tie than to the game we saw today against Liverpool, where it feels when you play Atletico Madrid, it's less like a celebration of the sport than just a, a war of attrition. <laughs> and as a neutral, it, it's 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 compelling, but it's not compelling in the same way to me, which is why I was so excited about the way this game was played today. High defensive lines, both teams going for it. That's not Atletico Madrid. No, no, it is not. Uh, and Atleti are going to make Man City sweat for the 90 minutes. Unless <laughs> City can get an early goal, it's going to be torturous. They're going to have a bunch of the ball, and they're going to have to figure out a way to try and break down a Simeone side, and it's not going to work for long stretches of it. It's going to be tedious. And so uh, figuring out a way uh, for, you know, when you think about Liverpool, you know, they'll, they'll take on Benfica. That'll be probably a fairly perfunctory result. They can rotate a few players and they'll move on to the semifinal. That is one slight advantage. Then they play each other on a neutral field at Wembley. I mean, and also Liverpool have the depth now. If you think about the way that they could change the game when they brought Luis Diaz and Firmino off the bench, that hasn't really been the case. I mean, yeah, Divock Origi has popped up with some really big moments for them down the years, but it's not someone where they bring on Origi or even Jordan Shakiri in previous years and you go, wow, Liverpool are really changing the game. They can really change the game with Firmino and Luis Diaz now, and they can bring those guys in when they're rotating in the squad. So, uh, yeah, I think there, there's a lot of ways in which this Liverpool is different. Also, by the way, if you look at the odds, uh, just to the point of Man City being prohibitive favorites, they are prohibitive favorites. They're minus 280 to win the league. Liverpool are plus 200. So, uh, you know, if, if Vegas thinks that Man City 
have the advantage going forward. All right. I'm not Vegas. Um, <laughs> we're going to get Jamie Carragher on here very soon to talk about a lot of things, including this game. So just a couple more quick things I want to hit. One, Gio Reyna, uh, unfortunately, more distressing images of a, of a distraught Reyna coming off very early in Dortmund's game with another injury. Seems like similar to the previous injuries. They've already announced Dortmund that he is being shut down for the rest of the, the season, which isn't that much more time, but still it'll be a chance for him to hopefully uh, get better and not be in a situation where this just is sort of a recurring thing. It's a long ways to the World Cup still, but still concerning, obviously, when you have such a young, talented, promising player who continues to pull up in these situations, Dortmund getting criticism because they've had a, a wide range of muscle injuries uh, their trainer is there is heading out at the end of the season. Uh, I, and I do know that Gio Reyna had seen some second opinions uh, during his recent five-month uh, stay on this sort of disabled list. But is there anything much more to say about it or just this is kind of a bummer? Yeah, it, it really is because I thought Gio Reyna had a really good international window. Uh, Marco Rosa, their coach, said uh, in a post-game press conference that that Reyna, he thinks, can be world-class and that he's coming through at a really impressive level at Borussia Dortmund. So, yeah, it just sucks that, you know, this player has had, you know, some longer-term injuries. I will say, you know, I thought this was going to be a, a bigger problem for Tim Weah, particularly in this season, and he stayed reasonably healthy this season. So I think that there's, you know, hope for the future that this is not going to be a permanent problem, that we're not looking at a situation where a prospect is, you know, being ruined by persistent injury. But it certainly is a concern uh, going forward that, that he's picked up these injuries. I also think it was interesting that, you know, a lot of the, you know, USMNT aggregator Twitters put out a picture of him looking sad. I think a lot of people just kind of like, all right, enough. Like, let's let's stop showing pictures and video of him crying. It, it, it was definitely difficult to look at, but I also, like, if you're reporting on the news and, you know, like, there's a video there and it's in front of the cameras, I guess as a media outlet, you're obliged to share it. But I think a lot of people kind of reached a critic. I, I mean, I, well, I mean, you, you reach. You're not obliged. Of, I mean, like I tweet. Yeah. I tweeted without a picture or a video. You don't need mm -hmm. to show that stuff. I didn't need to see Gio Reyna crying in a hundred different Twitter posts on Friday. You're not obliged. You really aren't. Mm -hmm. No, I, <laughs> I'm I, sorry. you know what? You're, no, you're right. You're right. You're not. Um, but I, I think that like that's a that's a sympathetic. Like I generally take a view towards like if news outlets want to share, you know scenes of things that happen now i think yeah. it does become it does become a line where like it seems like you're grief eating in a way that i think is fairly gross but also like i, I don't know it played out in front of the cameras like you can't you can't you can't like you know hold that like you can't exercise some judgment if you're like you know a paparazzi catching a video of it off like that would be pretty gross but i mean it happened in plain view it was just one of those things where it just it sucks so much to see that you don't really want to see it anymore yeah and i would say this too about just general television broadcasts when somebody has suffered an injury and especially a severe injury i don't need the camera to be in their face on the ground or as they're coming off. I, I, I kind of just, I don't need it. And I realized that it's a little bit like in a very extreme case, what we saw with Christian Erickson last year, where I thought the international feed showed way too much of that. I, 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 don't, I don't think we needed to see 
that as somebody was in danger of losing their life. So I realize that's a different extreme than Giorena or other injuries, but I think in general that TV producers could show a little more restraint. And I think that people out there, uh, including media people on, on Twitter, um, could show some restraint on, on what you decide you want to put out there image-wise. And I realize you could always say, oh, it's fair game and, and it's public and I get it. But um, that's one of those things where I, I've noticed that more and more. And I, and I agree with you, what you said originally here. I, I just, I finally tweeted, I, I, I've seen plenty of, you mm-hmm. know, geo crying. Um, and then I also wanted to ask you about uh, the LA Derby, LA Galaxy 2, LAFC 1 in the end. And, and this was, I, I liked this in the sense this was a big MLS game, big national hype. Chicharito and Vela going against each other for the first time in the league. Wish we had this kind of stuff more often in MLS, to be honest. And the game delivered, you know? I mean, Chicharito got the early goal, um, really good atmosphere in the stadium. And then a big call very late in the game when it appeared that LAFC had gotten an equalizer and it was waved off. What was your sense of all of that? Yeah, I I thought um, pro the referees organization in MLS... Uh, and all of the American game, or most of the American game, uh, put out a really interesting video of breaking down the decision from every angle. I act, I thought it was the initial ball that went off the back of Opoku of LAFC that was the offside. Um, it's interesting how in the Premier League we get annoyed when they get the lines out, but then in these sorts of moments when they don't have the lines, I'm frustrated that they don't have the lines because because I know based off the based off that technology that eyes deceive you like and that camera angles right. deceive you um, without the Hawkeye technology like I I don't trust my eyes when they go when we go to the monitor and you're trying to kind of gauge it because we don't know how the angle is playing tricks on you but they basically walked their way through it and it wasn't that initial incident it was the goal scorer and they basically determined that the ball coming off of the LA Galaxy defender was not a new face of play which is what they describe when the defender touches the ball and then an attacking player can come from an offside position and play it they determined that it was a deflection and not a new phase of play and so uh Latif Blessing was offside when the ball was initially played so even when he comes back off the deflection and scores that you know even fr- from a theoretically onside position that it it wouldn't have counted now from a pure drama standpoint you want that to count um and y- you wish you could see those explanations in real time and not, you know, Stu Holden trying to figure his way out without any guidance from the referee or any guidance from pro. Like, you want that on the broadcast so that people are aware of what's going on. Most importantly, you want people in the stadium aware of what's going on. But um, I, I, I think they got the decision right in the end. I'm a little surprised that LA Galaxy continue to fall into this trap of trying to defend leads for long periods when it doesn't seem like they're really built to do that. Like, they just don't have the defensive strength to do that. And they they got stuck in that trap again, and it nearly didn't work out. But VAR comes to their rescue. And we, we talked about City-Liverpool as a rivalry game that usually delivers. This one does, too. I, I can't remember too many times, maybe in the in the pandemic season, um, is probably the only time that I can remember that this game was bad. Um, but for the most part, you know, no, no matter the venue, when these two teams meet up, national television, it's a great occasion. It was again on Saturday. No, that's true. One thing I would say about Pro is I think Pro has been pretty good about saying publicly when they think they've screwed up, mm-hmm. that the referee has screwed up, so that it's given them some credibility that when they go through an announcement like this and explaining how they viewed it, that 
they're willing to say if they screwed up. And so mm -hmm. if they felt like they had here, they would have said so and didn't. So I, I, I will give them that. I, I'm a big Howard Webb fan. So, um, you know, I think he's done a good job. I think MLS VAR has generally been better than VAR in a lot of places, including England. And partly because MLS has been unwilling to actually spend the money for the telemetry to draw the lines and has followed more common sense on, uh, on offside in those situations. But uh, always good to talk to you, Chris. Many thanks. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Jamie Carragher. Our guest now is one of the leading pundits in world soccer. Jamie Carragher is a regular on Sky Sports, and for the last three seasons, he has done the Men's UEFA Champions League studio with CBS Sports and Paramount Plus in the United States. He won 11 trophies in a 17-year career with Liverpool, including the UEFA Champions League in the 2004-05 season. Jamie, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. It's a pleasure. Lots to talk about here, but we're talking 24 hours after Man City 2, Liverpool 2. Now that you've had 24 hours to digest it, what stands out to you from this game? Well, I think the actual intensity of Manchester City in both games, really. There was one earlier in the season at Anfield and one that we saw yesterday where I think Liverpool have been quite fortunate to come up with a draw in both games. So I think they should feel an awful lot better, uh, really. And I'm sure there'll be a little bit of frustration at, uh, at Manchester City's training ground this morning that they should really be four points clear of Liverpool. Uh, they should have won the game yesterday. So I actually think it's a much better point for Liverpool, really. And even though Man City have got the points in front, I just think psychologically it was a, it was a big result yesterday for Liverpool. Like they're still in there. They would love to have won. But on the back of the performance, I think there'd be a lot more frustration and disappointment at Manchester City that they're not further ahead. And, you know, there's still a lot of games and points to play for. You know, I feel like Liverpool City has become the defining club rivalry in this era globally. But I also feel like it's different from, say, the Real Madrid-Barcelona rivalry of a decade ago, especially the Mourinho years when it got pretty ugly at times. Liverpool City always seems like it's an entertaining game. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is? Well, I think that comes down to the two managers. You know, the way they want to play the game. You just mentioned Mourinho there. Whenever Jose goes to a top game, he would make it a walk. He would not be interested in the spectacle. I think the two managers we have here now don't want to take a backward step and don't want to be seen as, as the guy who seeds anything to, to the rival. You know, I have to change for you. No, it's, I'm going to play my way. I believe in, in my philosophy. I'm way good enough and I'm good enough to take you on. And I think at this moment right now, I think there's only Liverpool who maybe there may be one or two other teams, maybe Bayern Munich in world football who would take City on and play the way they play and not change anything. And there'll be a few tactical tweaks, of course, when you play different opposition, but you know there was no way Pep Guardiola, uh, Jürgen Klopp was going to go to the Etihad yesterday and play counter-attacking football. That was never going to happen. So I think that's the big reason why these are such entertaining games, and we always get goals because you know nowhere, none of the two managers prepared to uh, change tack for the other. We're going to get another Liverpool City this weekend in the FA Cup semi-final. When it comes to the Champions League, do you think Liverpool and City are on a collision course to meet in the final? Yes, I think so. But it is a competition and anything can happen very quickly. And very rarely can we predict from the quarterfinal stage what the final will be. We all, we all 
feel what the two best teams are in Europe each season. And if you can keep them apart, you think that would be a dream final. But even though they are the two best teams in world football right now, a refereeing decision, a mistake, an injury, a red card, that's why it's so hard to win the Champions League. And that's why it's been really difficult for Pep, you know, since his Barcelona days. He's had Bayern Munich, he's had Manchester City now. And he's still not been able to get his hands on it. And a lot of that is to do with sort of really defining moments that can change a game. And uh, I'm not saying that I could I hope for that final, not particularly on the performance of Man City yesterday, but uh, I hope Liverpool's there. I think there's more chance of Liverpool being there than Manchester City uh, right now. Why? Well, I think Liverpool are virtually through uh, against Benfica. So I think Liverpool are in the semi-final. I I think Atletico Madrid away is going to be a tougher game than maybe a lot of people think uh, for Man City. We know it's a tough game and people keep saying Atletico Madrid have got to come out and play, but I'm not sure they will. I, I think if you said to Atletico Madrid after an hour, it'll still be nil-nil. <laughs> I, I think they'll be happy with that. I think they're prepared to go to extra time. They're prepared to go to penalties. They'll make it horrible. I think the atmosphere will be electric in that stadium because they would delight the one-nil defeat. Mm-hmm. Um back Man City to go through, but I think it's going to be a really tough proposition. So of the teams that are still alive in the Champions League, which one do you think has the best chance of sort of ruining the party for City and Liverpool? Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, someone else? I'd probably say Real Madrid because because the Real Madrid, in some ways. I wouldn't say I've ever felt for the last two or three years they are the, you know, the best team in Europe. They had that great spell under Zidane. Obviously, a lot of the players are getting a little bit older now, but I've written them off so much in the last two or three years working with CBS. And they just proved me wrong so often. I mean, they've never gone on to win it, but, you know, knocking Liverpool out last season, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see the first leg result against Chelsea. And a lot of that, I feel, is they are Real Madrid, that history in the European Cup, that belief that they are supposed to win Champions Leagues, I really think helps them through. Of course, the coach you've got, I think, is the most successful coach in Champions League history. And, uh, yeah, they could be the team who put a spanner in the works for either Manchester City in the semi-final or Liverpool in the final. So it's interesting, in the Premier League, obviously Liverpool remains a point behind City with seven games to play. I got some flack on Twitter yesterday for saying that I actually think Liverpool's got a decent shot to win the league. And people are like, well, look at the teams that both City and Liverpool are playing the rest of the way. City's actually got the advantage. Where do you stand on this? No, I mean, it's a lot closer than what people are thinking. I... In terms of names on paper, you'd say it's probably a little bit easier for City. But I go back to the psychologically yesterday, the fact Liverpool came out with a point when they didn't deserve it, I think it would be frustration at City today. And don't forget, as these games get ticked off, and if Liverpool just even stay a point behind in the three or four games to go, psychologically, Man City were 14 points clear at one stage. Yep. I mean, they've got it all to lose in some ways. You know, for Liverpool, I wouldn't say there's it's still a pressurised situation, but... No one expected this, you know, when Liverpool drew away at Chelsea 2-2, I think in January. Everyone said the league was done. I was one of them. So I think for Liverpool, they've just got to treat it as almost like, you know, we won the league before. We're in this position. We can't believe it. We'll, we'll give everything we've got. And if City were to lose it, everyone will point back to the fact they were 14 points clear, which is the biggest margin anyone has ever been in front and not won a league. So I'm going to start beating that drum. So you're associated with Liverpool almost as much as anybody. We're in the seventh season of the Jurgen Klopp era at Liverpool. You've observed him closely. What are the keys in your mind to what Jurgen Klopp has achieved at Liverpool? Well, the key is he's got absolute belief and confidence in himself. And you'd expect that for a manager of that quality. 
But the most important thing is I think the players and the supporters have the utmost belief and confidence in, in the manager that whatever he says, whatever team he picks, everybody backs it. You never hear anyone being critical behind the scenes. Even last season, Liverpool obviously had a, a poor season by a year in club standards, but obviously we know there was a lot of injuries involved. But I want to say, not six games at home in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think there was one Liverpool supporter ever saying that Jürgen Klopp still wasn't the right man. I mean, to lose six games at home for Liverpool is, is, is unbelievable. And as I said, we know the problems that they had centre-back-wise. That was a big part of it. But I don't think at any stage anyone would ever question this manager in any way, shape or form, no matter what happened this season or in the next two seasons that he's got left. I think if, if Liverpool never won another trophy between now and the end of Jürgen Klopp's contract, every Liverpool supporter would still want him to sign a new contract. Do you think he will? I'm coming round to the idea that he will. Huh. Uh, I think it's almost been said that he won't. And he, he's always done seven years at a club, so it was almost a bonus that it's going to end up being nine at Liverpool. But what, what makes me think he will, the closer the time gets to it, is number one, what, what is he going to do? He obviously is obsessed with football. People talk about international football. Would that, would that satisfy Jürgen Klopp? One game a month, one game every two months. I'm not so sure. And it, Liverpool wasn't a job where the team was there ready. He had to build it. And it probably took him three or four years to get the team he wanted, playing the way he wanted. And if this team is still performing the way it is now in two years' time, I just don't know how, after all the work he's put in, you would pass that team to somebody else. And the other thing that makes me think he may stay is when he left Borussia Dortmund, he said he wanted a sabbatical. He was manager of Liverpool two months later. <laughs> I have a hard time seeing him doing the international game right now, maybe down the road, but coaching Germany. But I just can't see him handling so few games. But, but, I, but. I don't see him being suited to, you know, where do you leave Liverpool to go? I don't see him being suited to a Real Madrid Barcelona. Right. I think his whole career has been with a team who are fighting against somebody or, you know, maybe somebody's got more money or the, the, the city of coming together and... I think obviously Mines and Dortmund are fighting Bayern Munich. We're fighting Man City now. We're financially a lot stronger. So Manchester United and a lot of Liverpool is about the crowd and the intensity of everybody being together. And I just, you know, if we went to maybe a Bayern Munich, I don't know if you can go there if you've been Dortmund manager or a Barcelona or a Real Madrid. I'm just not sure that's quite there. I, I just think he's got so much power at Liverpool. He's a god. He's going to be getting great wages and good luck to him. And he's got one of the best teams in the world. It just, I think it's hard to walk away from. So a while back, I had Paolo Maldini on my podcast. And I asked him a question that I want to ask you about central defenders in the modern game. And I asked him if he thought there were fewer truly world-class central defenders in the game today than there were 20 years ago. And he said yes. What do you think? Uh, well, I'd never like to disagree with Paolo Maldini, but what I would say is it's a it's a completely different game now. If it, it feels like you're watching a different sport at times when you judge centre-back 30 years ago or 20 years ago, because I think centre-back now must be the most difficult position on the pitch mm-hmm. because you've got to you've got to be especially at the top level. You've got to be able to handle the ball. You've got to receive the ball in your own six-yard box, 18-yard box, and you know one slip, one misplaced pass. And it's in the back of your net. The top teams now are pushing far higher up a pitch than, than we ever did. Maybe it was different for, for Paolo playing under Saki and, you know, we you know catching offside and being really compact. But when I watched Man City Liverpool yesterday, I, I can't actually quite believe what I'm seeing when I see how high 
the back fours are. So every ball over the top is a race, is a sprint. And now fullbacks are not fullbacks there. The playmakers, the wingers. So centre backs get exposed a lot more one v one. So I just think there's a lot more protection for the defenders. I think when obviously Paolo was playing, when I was playing, I mean Paolo was obviously one of the greatest players of all time, and he he would cope no problem whatsoever with the demands of today. But I think I'd find it tough. I think I would, and uh, I just think we're watching a different game. We expect so much more from defenders, and so we're going to get more mistakes from defenders. So maybe in a certain light, we think, oh, he's not as good because he's made that mistake, or he made that mistake, and maybe a Berezi or Maldini when he was playing, they weren't making those type of mistakes. But I don't think they were asked to play the way centre-backs play now, which I, I just think we would have seen a lot more mistakes from players who we, who we remember as absolute legends in those positions. I, I do think the modern game is so different for the reasons you just laid out there. If you had to pick your favorite center back in the world today, who would it be? Oh, Virgil van Dijk by a mile. <laughs> I, I mean, my favorite center back uh, of all time has always been Franco Baresi. Uh, I used to watch the old AC Milan teams. Uh, you know, his organization, the, the pushing up his, his intensity. His performance in the World Cup final in 1994 is one of the greatest performances you'll ever see from any player. The fact that he was he was up against Bebeto, Romano, he'd had a knee operation after the first game of the tournament and then didn't play another minute and played in the final. just tells you everything about the man. But uh, I, I, I think when Virgil van Dijk finishes playing, I think I'd put the two of them in my best ever 11 I've seen. Because I just think Virgil van Dijk now... He's the best in the air. He's the quickest. He's the best on the ball. There's nothing the fella can't do. Uh, and, uh, and for me, I think he's the best by a long way right now. So I've really enjoyed your work as with other people on the CBS Paramount Plus studio show for Champions League. And I'm wondering, have you noticed any differences doing TV for the United States compared to TV in England? Oh, yes. It's, uh, it's party time in the States. <laughs> uh, feels like it. A lot less, uh, you know, we, we, we get into probably a lot more heated debates, discussions, arguments on uh, on English TV. And I think on uh, you know, the American TV, it's a bit more lighthearted and it's a different show. And to be honest, I love it. And the reason I love it is because it is different and it gives me something, you know, different. And yeah, it, you know, rather than doing the same stuff all the time, at times we can get serious and debate things, especially when it's Champions League, because... You know, it really is cutthroat and, you know, big teams are expected to win and not doing well and spending lots of money. You know, the Champions League for me is the greatest football competition in the world, bigger than international football. I wouldn't say bigger, it's definitely 100% it's better quality of football. And uh, yeah, so it gives you that nice balance of enjoying yourself at different times, but also talking about the best players in the world. Now, we've already seen some of the English tabloids say England got a good World Cup draw in part because they drew the United States... That said, my friend, the U.S. has never lost to England in a World Cup. How do you see this England team and its chances at the World Cup? I think the England team will go close again. I think it's a brilliant draw for Gareth Southgate. It really is. And that's not just because uh, the United States get in there, but I don't think you could have picked a better draw. Uh, I think America would feel that as well, really. You know, the, the actual draw, I think they, they'd be confident they've got a great chance of going through as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean... My worry is that England, what's happened in the last two tournaments is the draw has really gone for them. 
and they've had a really good pathway through to a, a semi-final, a final. And whenever they've come up against real quality, they've lost. And that would be my worry for this England team, that if they got who people project, they will get in the quarterfinals as France. I think that would be the end of the tournament. But it never works like that. It never works the way we expect it to work. So, you know, if England can get a decent draw, you know, but my fear is that as soon as they play real top quality or someone on the same level or someone just above them, I think that could be the end of the tournament. So we are an American show here, and I wanted to get your sense of an American now coaching in the Premier League, Jesse Marsh at Leeds United. What are your initial thoughts on Marsh and how he goes about things? I think he's done brilliantly well. I really do. Coming after Marcelo Bielsa, was, was, he was almost like a godlike figure at Leeds. But credit to Leeds as a football club as well. They made a brave decision to change a manager who was loved by the supporters. And I think it saved them from going down. And I think that's all the credit's got to do to Jesse Marsh. Jesse Marsh, sorry. I think it really has. I think he's, he's improved them. There's no doubt about that. They're not as open. They've changed the sort of man-marking system, which was great for us, analysing football. You know, because it was different. We could talk about different things. But in terms of the setup for Leeds, it was causing them huge problems. So I think from that first game away at Leicester, they were very unlucky not to get something from the game. I did. They were 2-0 down at Wolves, and uh, they come back and won 3-2. So I think he's been a great addition to uh, the Premier League, Jesse Marsh, at this moment. And it'll be really interesting to see how he does next season and what type of player he wants to bring in the summer and almost, you know, evolve the team even more to his way of thinking. So continuing the American theme here, I happen to live in New York City, right near the Liverpool bar Carragher's, where I've had a few pints over the years. What's the story of your connection with the bar? And I know you visited at least once. What happened when you did that? Yeah, I mean, I've been there a few times, really. It just comes from uh, the owner. is a guy called Brian, who uh, is an Irish guy, Liverpool fan, who's got about four or five bars in New York. So I don't know where the connection come or if he met my dad in Liverpool or what it was. But uh, I remember meeting him in Liverpool and he, he said he, he had this idea for a Carragher's bar. And uh, I thought, oh, that sounds good. And uh, a bar named after me in New York. I mean, it doesn't happen too often for lads from Google. I can assure you that. that. And uh, But no, it's brilliant. It's, it's, it's like a shrine to Liverpool and myself, really. So I've probably been over four or five times. My dad just got back from there a couple of weeks ago. So it's, uh, it's great. And anyone who ever goes to New York from Liverpool is always on the phone asking me to get them in or get them free drinks. So uh, I'm not sure how much money's being made because uh, everyone seems to be getting everything at the moment <laughs> now as we speak Everton is four points above the relegation zone I know you have a childhood connection to the club could you explain what that connection is and are you legitimately concerned about Everton and relegation yes I'm concerned about them uh, I am I don't, I don't want Everton to go down and that's nothing to do with my connection uh, to the club as a kid when I was a huge supporter I used to go and watch Everton home and away but uh, I just don't want to be good for the city I really don't have missed Derby games which I absolutely love I think Everton are a huge club in the Premier League and and in English football. And I think you want to keep those big, strong, traditional clubs in the Premier League. And that's not just Everton. I was delighted when Leeds came back. I was actually speaking to somebody today about uh, Nottingham Forest doing well in the Champions. So that's another huge club. We've won you know, two European Cups. You want them back in the Premier League. And uh, yeah, Everton's the same as that. I... I think the result we got at the weekend against Manchester United makes a huge difference, especially with Burnley losing, because I actually did feel before the Burnley game, if they lost to Burnley, they'd go down. They're not out of the woods by any means. It was a really tough fixture list. But they've just got a little bit of breathing space at the moment, and uh, 
yeah, I hope to stay up. They're supposed to be building a stadium that's coming in the next two or three years, which will be great for Everton and the actual city itself, which I'm you know really passionate about. So we know I really want Everton to stay up. So we're going to finish up here with what I call the rapid fire quiz. I've done this with mm. a bunch of prominent former players, including recently Ian Wright. I did it with Paolo Maldini. Um, so rapid fire here, we'll start. What did you achieve in football that you are the most proud of and why? I have got more European appearances than any other English player in history. I'm sure that will change uh, in the next few years. But right now, I'm at the top of that list, which when I think of some of the players who played, obviously, in European competitions for all the great clubs in our country, to be top of that list is something I'm really proud of. Who was the best player you ever played against and why? Thierry Henry. He was the best player that's ever graced the Premier League. And that Arsenal team was the best team I played against in the in the Premier League from 2002 to 2004. And uh, yeah, I, I come up against Thierry a lot. I come up against him a lot now on the, uh, the CBS show. But he was in a, a he was a he was a great player. He was the best player in the world, I think, for two or three years. I don't think he ever won the Ballon d'Or, but I think for two or three years around that era, he was the he, for me he was the best player in the world. Who was the player you most admired in your career, and why? Oh. Most admired. That's an interesting question. You threw me there, but I wasn't ready for something. <laughs> I mean, the first person I'm thinking of is Stevie Gerrard, but I normally answer that with the best player. Probably the reason I'd, I'd say I admired Stevie was the fact that he was so loyal to Liverpool and we were never top dogs in our own country. And he had the opportunity to go to Real Madrid, into Milan almost every season, and he didn't. And also the fact, a little bit similar to me, but a lot more for Stevie. When you're a local player and you play your whole career for the one club, there's a lot of ups and downs. And and to be seen as the guy, certainly for Stevie, to carry the weight of the city at times on his shoulders, he was always seen as the guy who'd have to produce something for us to you know, win a cup competition or qualify for the Champions League. And, and that was a lot to sort of carry for a local player with your family and friends around you for sort of 15 or 16 years. So I'd say Stephen Gerrard. Best manager you ever had and why? Toss up between Gerrard Hulier and Rafa Benitez. Both completely different people. I had them six years each. So 12 years of my Liverpool career was with those two. I won more trophies with Gerard Hulia. You know, the club and myself won more trophies under Gerard. But Rafa, we won the big one. Uh, the Champions League and, and possibly made the most, well, not possibly, I think is the most famous game in the club's history. And we'll possibly be in the top four or five games in, in football history, really, I would imagine. So to be part of that was something special. I saw Rafa yesterday at uh, at the Etihad. He was working for uh, TVT two, TV Two in uh, in Norway. So he was talking. So I had a good chat with him then. And uh, and yet Rafa was a tactician. Gerard Hulier was more about man management and motivating. Yeah. So I mean, putting the two of them together, you've got the, the best manager of all time. I think so. I never split them because they both were great for my career and, and all my great memories at Liverpool came into those two managers. Got two more for you, and you're off the hot seat. What is the best advice you have ever received, and why? Uh, I mean, people always ask me for advice, or if I do a talk, they say, well, you always struggle for words at the end. Uh, what is the, what's, what's the one about hard work and talent? I always like that one. <laughs> is that the one where hard work... Hard work beats talent. Yep. Talent doesn't work hard. Yep, yep. You got it. Okay. Yeah, last... that... <laughs> it didn't roll off the door. 
<laughs> Last one. Who is your favorite player in the world today and why? Ooh, who's my favorite player? I would say Kevin De Bruyne. I, I, yeah, I'd go with De Bruyne just because, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm only, he is the best player right now. I think he's the best midfield player. He's definitely in the best five or six players in the world. I just like the way he comes across his interviews. He's very low maintenance. He doesn't act like a superstar, but he is a superstar. He's just, when I watch him play, even yesterday, he's still a bit, I mean, I don't even know what man of the match, even though I was probably part of the decision who gave man of the match. <laughs> guy. But, I mean, you see the last minute of the game, the chance man, as the passion to blow him with his left foot, you know, when he's, he's probably knackered towards the end of the game. I just love watching him play and I just wish he wasn't in a Man City shirt he was in actually in a Liverpool shirt because I think he's one of I, I, obviously I had a debate with Micah on CBS last week I said he's the greatest player to ever play for Manchester City and I will stand by that and argue that with anyone I, I think he is City's greatest ever player and I think he's one of the greatest players to ever play in the Premier League Jamie Carragher is a regular on Sky Sports and for the last three seasons has done the Men's UEFA Champions League studio for CBS Sports and Paramount Plus in the United States. Jamie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Jamie Carragher as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Free seven-day trials are now available. We'll see you next time. 